Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm so happy to be here today with my good friend, Rev. Rachel Hollander. She's a fascinating person, and I know that you're going to love this conversation today. We, in grieving, use lots of terminology that may be correct and maybe not be correct. And Rev. Rachel has quite a background and experience with depression. And I know I've known several people who said, well, as soon as they started grieving, they they were really depressed and and they needed to get out of it. And they've even gone to doctors and said, I'm depressed because I'm grieving and the doctors give them antidepressants and without really fully considering the whole picture. And so I thought that would be a really good thing for us to talk about that, that we can both learn about and learn how you can be happy even when you're dealing with grief or dealing with depression, there's happiness too. So this is Rev. Rachel Hollander. Would you like to tell us a little bit about you, please? Yeah, I'm taking notes so that I, I learned this, this skill of instead of getting an idea and interrupting you because I want to tell you, I just like jot it down so then and then I have it. But um, yes, yeah, so I am the fourth of four girls born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, all very uh, artistic and musical and expressive and encouraged from a young age to be ourselves and be okay with that, uh, with who we are. And for a long time, though, I felt when I was younger, I just felt like disconnected from the world. I felt like the world was happening and then I was over here and I didn't know what that feeling was called. I didn't know what this sadness that was in me was called. I just knew that I felt like, why do I feel so sad? Why do I feel so not with everyone else? And then when I was 12, my dad, who was like the hero of my story, died suddenly. And then I had this hook. It was like, oh, I can say that I feel this way because my dad died. So that was sort of the beginning of of the journey. I discovered looking back... When I started working on my book, I discovered that I had a diary from when I was 10. So I was 12 when my dad died, but I found a diary from when I was 10 that actually said, I feel so depressed. And I don't remember knowing that word when I was Mm. 10. I just, I do remember 10 being a really pivotal time. All that aside, so now I'm in my 50s and I've written a book and I've got a podcast and I interpret theater and I sing and I teach and I'm a minister an ordained interfaith interspiritual minister, and I'm the, the proud dog mama of a wonderful creature named Maddie. <laughs> Maddie's so beautiful, and I know she brings you so much joy in your life, and that's a really important thing, too. Um, we could talk about that, because there's, there's something about the companionship of uh, the unconditional love that Maddie shares with you, and it's, yes. it's really quite beautiful. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, just earlier today, we were renewing her uh, emotional support animal status. <laughs> I We meet with a therapist online and 
they check in with me. They don't check in with Maddie, but they check in with me. And I sometimes think that I'm Maddie's emotional support animal. (laughs) We're a little codependent. It's okay. It's okay. We take care of each other. (laughs) Uh, Well, can you talk to us about what's different about true depression and just feeling bad and, and, uh, and grieving? Yeah. So when I wrote this, I've been writing this book forever. And when I finally published it, somebody asked me, so are you an authority on depression? And I said, well, I'm an authority on my experience of depression. I will speak about depression in general. However, I know that I don't know all there is to know about all of it. What I can say, though, is first things first is semantics are really important to me, words are very meaningful. And so you'll never hear me say my depression because it's not mine or that I suffer from depression because I do not suffer. I wrestle with it and I struggle with it. Most importantly, though, I live with it. I stay alive with it. So things like that make a big difference to me when talking about depression, you know, when when people are talking with me and they say, well, you know, my depression, and I'm like, can I stop you right there? Because when we own something like my cancer, my, my anything, we are now taking ownership of that. And again, like I said, I think words have power and there's something behind that my-ness, that ownership. When it comes to depression with grief, that is such a tricky tricky thing because there's sadness at grief and loss and then there's depression and i've i've lost many people that i love emily knows very well that i have this guardian area in my house where i have pictures and souvenirs and tokens and it's a huge altar that takes up like one area of my living room of all the people who have left the planet and are watching over me And so like, I feel like I'm compartmentalizing because it's like, I grieve the loss of them. I am sad that they're not here. The depression is like a whole other animal. And so yeah, when somebody's in the throes of grief, I don't know that an antidepressant is what they need. I think it's okay to grieve. I think we're so conditioned to be like, don't cry, don't grieve, get over it, move on. And there's a wonderful phrase where that it says, uh, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. This weekend is the birthday of my beloved soul twin, Jimmy, who left the planet eight years ago. And I wouldn't say that I'm actively grieving him. However, I'm darn sad that he's not here. And I wish that he was. And at the same time, someone said to me when I, when the book came out and I said, oh, I wish Jimmy was here to see this. They said, if Jimmy was here, this moment wouldn't be this moment. The book might not have happened. Everything could have been different if he was still here. And it's like, oh, right. And I'm not saying that he had to die for my book to be published. However, it's just saying that we can't say, oh, I wish they were still here. Well, we can say, I wish that they were still here. We just have to recognize that here wouldn't be here. 
And I realized I took your question and I went way on a journey, <laughs> which is what I do. And I hope that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely all right. And oh, I agree with you with what you just said. That's that's really powerful. I remember back in the olden days when I was in high school, we had a one-act play festival. And we did this play one year that has resonated with me forever called The Monkey's Paw. Do you know the monkey's paw? We did that in eighth grade. Yes. <laughs> and that I, I think, you know, back in those days, it was they were teaching us all a lesson because uh, essentially what the monkey's paw about is a, is a grieving family and they're grieving because and I don't remember the details because that was a whole lot of years ago. But they, they were grieving their son and they wanted him back so much that they, they just kept calling for him, praying for him, doing whatever they could to get him to come back. And finally, they heard him coming up to the door and it suddenly dawned on them that the person, their, their son, who'd been killed in some sort of terrible, I think, industrial accident and was very mutilated, that if they opened that door, mm. that that was who they were going to see. Ooh. And wow. it may it has made me think. I re- reflect on that whenever I say, "Oh, I I wish Ron could come back," or oh, you know, "I wish Jacques were here." I think now they're they're right where they're supposed to be right now. We can't make things happen differently just because that's what we want. My mom and I were talking about that this summer, this past summer, because you know she was saying how wonderful life is right now, and and how hard sometimes it is to think about the fact that my dad is missing it. You know, he's missing the grandchildren and he's missing the fact that I have actually like done something really awesome in my life. And, you know, he's missing it. And so we had this conversation about the night that he died because he had this like massive heart explosion and he was playing tennis at the time and he was actually gone before he even landed on the ground. And we both realized that had he survived that, he wouldn't have been who he had been. And that would have been almost worse to have seen my dad, my vital, energetic, funny, boisterous dad, if he had survived that and had been bedridden or had been, you know, had lost some of who he was. That would have been, I think, even harder. You know, the negotiation point is 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I was used to ask God, like, couldn't you just give me 10 minutes? I would have liked 10 minutes to say, I love you and thank you. That's it. That's all I wanted. You know, and that's, that's hard. Um, However, yeah, it's that negotiation of, it's kind of like with our pets, you know, when we get so selfish at the end of their life and they're suffering and it's hard for us because it's like, no, I want to keep them alive as long as possible. And Maddie and I have had long conversations about dignity. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, never put a diaper on me, mom. <laughs> so yeah. no, doggy no doggy diapers. Oh, that makes me think of, of so many things I was thinking of with Jacques. He was um, a lot older than I am. And he was a very vital, happy, energetic person. 
And people loved him for who he was. We had a, a, an actual professional melodrama theater where we lived, and they didn't really hire locals, they called them, but they would hire Jacques because everybody in the community loved him and he could really make them laugh. And people, I still have people say, remember when Jacques had that pink tutu on from the Christmas show? <laughs> so there, there were always things like that. So when he started, when his health started really going downhill at the beginning, he had so many people coming to see him and calling him and bringing him stuff and very supportive. But the more he declined, the less they showed up. And when he could really have used them the most, nobody was coming around mm. uh, because they, they couldn't deal with what they were seeing because he, he physically changed. He looked different. He was ultimately on dialysis and that does crazy things with your, your weight. And, you know, you go in weighing one amount and you come out the same day weighing a totally different amount. And so you're going up and down and back and forth. And people just didn't want to see that. They wanted to remember the happy, joyful, yeah. wonderful guy that he was instead of that. So that meant that Jacques and I spent a lot of time alone, just the two of us together. Mm. And ironically, he didn't, I don't know, he wasn't looking in the mirror or whether he was just paying attention to what his thoughts were. He didn't feel like he was any different than he was before he started having these health challenges. Wow. And so it was nice to be able to have conversations with him like nothing was going on, but we weren't really living in the real world. Yeah. And that whole concept of living with things how they actually are, I think is, is one of the big challenges. And in a way it, it was good for him because it, it protected him from being sad mm. and, and mm -hmm. following, falling down that, that deep hole. That's, that's beautiful. So, actually, and, he was, yeah. But he and, saw himself as he was. Yeah. And he, yeah. And so as, as I realized that that's what he was doing, I had to do that or I, I chose to do that too because uh, nobody else was coming around and it just wasn't right for him to be by himself. I felt that we just kind of needed to support each other through this process. And it, it wasn't until he actually died because he, I, I know he didn't know he was dying actually, which is ironic because he was a, a bioethicist which means the the uh truths about living and dying essentially that that he would have been able to keep this from himself i don't know if he knew deep down in his heart someplace that he was on his way out but he sure didn't act like it and it was only about an hour before he died he asked me if he was going to get better mm. and that was so hard because at that moment, I realized that the, the truth of it was that he always thought he was going to the doctor, that he was staying in the hospital, that he was enduring all these painful treatments and things that he had to deal with because he thought it was going to make him well. You go to the doctor to get well and they, they heal you. And he realized at that moment when he asked me that question, if he was going to get better, he realized that he wasn't. Yeah. And he realized that where he was was not a good place to live because it was it was pretty miserable by that point and it was like within the hour that that was it he was gone what's interesting to me about your experience and other people who've had similar experience compared with some of the experiences that i've had in terms of grief is that 
the majority of the people that I loved, that I still love, who have who have gone, it was sudden. There was no goodbye. It was unexpected. It was jolting. It was jarring. There was no process. And so when I hear your story and when I hear other people's stories about, you know, sitting with the person and talking with them and processing and having these moments of connection, there's almost like there's this ridiculous jealousy that I have where it's like, well, I wish I had had that, you know, because and I think the grieving can be different. I think even the sadness can be different because there is a sweetness to those conversations as sad as they were and as hard as they were. There's a sweetness to having shared that that depth as opposed to the, you know, getting the phone call by the way, the person you love is dead. And it's like, wait, 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 like I need a minute, you know? Yeah. It's like going into the pool by the stairs or diving into the, the deep end. Mm-hmm. Either way, the pool is cold. It's just a very different experience. <laughs> and I think that grieving and depression being two separate things, however, talking about them together in this bucket, I think that the process is different, not easier or harder, just a very different different way of looking at the experience. And I remember when I was in seventh grade and my dad died, two other young women in my class within a month, their fathers also passed. One had been fighting cancer and one uh, completed suicide. Mm. And so all three of us had three different deaths of our fathers and Ironically, well, we were 12, so it's not a lot to expect there. We could not comfort each other. Like we'd see each other and barely even make eye contact because it was like, I can't handle yours, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, well, I can't handle yours, you know, and it was, there was just so much feeling going on that we couldn't even like form a little tribe of people who'd lost their dads because it was just, it's like, I know I'm drowning in my own pool. I can't throw you a lifeline right now because I'm in trouble. I find that to be an interesting observation that how people leave us does have an impact on how we grieve them. I don't know if you experienced regret. Not regrets. I don't like that word, but like there were things left unsaid. There were things Mm -hmm. left unsaid that I'm never going to get a chance to say. And had I been given that 10 minutes (laughs) with any of them, especially with Jimmy, you know, if I'd been given that 10 minutes, so much could have helped. I recently was working with a woman who does communication with those who've passed. And uh, she's a fascinating woman. And some of the stuff that she did was way out in left field. <laughs> you know, it was like, no, I've never had a child. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. But there was, she said, there's a young man here who is very handsome, very shy. And all he's saying is, let yourself off the hook. Hmm. And that's what I've been saying about Jimmy for years was that I I don't know if I can ever let myself off the hook. Hmm. And when she said that, I was like, well, all right, I'll take that. (laughs) I'll accept that one as true because it just landed, you know, right there. Okay. He's okay. We're okay. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> wow that, that's 
pretty powerful. There's so much. I just had somebody yesterday asking of me if if I believed that we could communicate with people that were gone so that we could tell them those things that we wanted to tell them while they were still here. And I thought in, in a way that's kind of what I'm doing. I can't tell you whether or not the, the people that are not here physically anymore, I can't tell you whether they're actually getting my messages when I write them a letter, but I still choose to do that because it works for me to yes. talk to them by, by writing them letters. And sometimes I let them write back. And when that happens, I'm not sure whether that's me saying what I want to hear mm-hmm. or if, if it's actually coming from them. But boy, I've, it's been profound when I write those letters back. And it's, it's quite a, a way of learning for me. I definitely feel that communication happens. There'll be, it's happened more than once where I've either been on a walk with Maddie or driving in the car. And I just, I'll just yell, like, give me something now. Like I need something now. And a song will come on the shuffle. And it's like, eh, there you are, you know, or even a billboard, you know, just something. But mostly it's the, the music's on shuffle and boom, there's the song. And it's like, thank you. Thank you. I just needed I just needed to know that you were nearby. Thank you. And that means a lot to me. And, you know, of course, cynical people will say, well, it's coincidence. You know, it's an algorithm. It's your shuffle. I'm like, okay, fine. I find that whatever helps me, I'll believe. Mm -hmm. And whatever helps them, they can believe. It's okay. They don't have to believe what I believe. (laughs) Yeah, That's all right. You know, I, I'm doing what I need to do to get through each day. And it's the same with depression. It's like, I know that there are people out there that, well, they've said to me, they're like, I don't understand why you say that you live with depression. You don't look like it. You don't sound like it. You laugh, you're smiling. You seem so happy. Well, first of all, you don't see me 24 Mm seven. Second of all, I've been a trained actor since I was four, (laughs) you know, and third, the most important thing is I learned a huge thing that I didn't know a long time ago. And I learned it, I'm going to say 15 years ago, maybe I learned about gratitude. And I know there are people rolling their eyes right now saying, stop rolling your eyes. You're going to pull a muscle. (laughs) Gratitude is not some hoity-toity, woo-woo, spiritual term. It is the lifeline that has saved my life. It is the thing that I hold on to. It is the thread that keeps me above the water. And it starts with the most basic. You know, at the end of every day, I write down at least three things I'm grateful for. And sometimes those are technology Sometimes they're the color of the leaves today. Maddie is always on there. My mom's on there. I did laundry today. So I, I probably write that I'm grateful that I did adulting because I, I did a lot of adulting today. I was a huge adulter today. <laughs> you know, Dan Millman taught me this in 1996. He said very offhand, he just said it and let it go. But he said, if you can't think of three things that you're grateful for at the end of the day, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And, and it doesn't have to be big things. It started back in the day. It started with socks that fit. Like I was grateful that I found socks that didn't cause an indent on my ankle. 
like that was a big deal. You know, <laughs> I was thankful that I woke. I'm thankful every day that I wake up in a bed in a house where I'm safe and that that I have this bed and this pillow. I always tell people with gratitude, start with the most basic. That's the key though. And that's why I appear happy and cheerful and whatever. I'm just grateful. And even in the darkest times, even when I'm going through moments that are that nobody sees, I will, I've been known to scream out a gratitude list as I'm crying. <laughs> so I'll lay on the bed, the tears are flowing, I'm racked with pain, I'm so deep in the darkness, and I will start yelling. I'm thankful for my bed. I'm thankful for my teapot. I'm thankful that I have clean water coming out of the tap. I'm thankful that I have a phone, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And I'll just keep yelling it until I can get through the moment. And so we, we were talking before we started about this quote about don't betray your grief. Don't feel like you're betraying your grief by experiencing joy. It's okay to laugh when you're grieving. It's okay. Actually, my mom shares this story that the night after my dad, so the night my dad died, the house filled with people. My dad was really well loved and, and people were just stunned and he was only 48 years old and it was scary and weird. And um, for a good couple of days, the house was just filled with people coming in and out. And at one point my mom was talking to a friend and she laughed. And someone said to her something like, I'm glad to see you're getting over it. <laughs> and she was just like, what? You know, and it was this stunning reminder that people don't know how to deal with grief. It's okay that she was laughing. It was actually a blessing that she was laughing. It's been 46 years. I don't know that she's over it. I know I'm not over it. I've learned to live without him. I've learned to integrate him into my life. I still do things that he taught me to do, like pull the car over when you see a rainbow because it's a miracle. Enjoy your food. <laughs> so that idea of it's, it's okay to experience happiness. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to feel relief. Even when you're deep in the throes of depression or grief or sadness, it's okay to enjoy an ice cream cone. You're not betraying the grief by enjoying the ice cream cone. Wow, that again, long journey. Thank you for letting me go on that really long journey. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely perfect. I, I know gratitude for me changed my life. Mm -hmm. I was not going in a direction that I wanted to be going, and I had no idea what to do to help me out of it. And my doctor had said, here, take these pills. And they didn't change anything, you know. I did it because I was, you know, desperate. I thought he must know that I, I need this, but it, it wasn't what I needed. What I did need was gratitude and expressing it. And, and that's just so incredibly important. And it's gotten kind of a bad rap lately. It seems like everybody's saying, oh, you know, that you just that's like pie in the sky and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really mean anything, but it does. It, it does. just means everything in the world. And one of the things that I do when I write, and I write my gratitude every day, at least three things, frequently a lot more than that, but I always write at least three. And instead of just saying, 
I'm grateful for the blue skies today. I say, why? Because mm. we, we mm-hmm. see lots of pretty blue skies here in Maui, where I live now. But I wasn't seeing blue skies when I lived in California. We could actually, when we came down out of the mountains, down into the San Joaquin Valley, the air was actually brown. Yeah. And I can remember when I was a child that, that the air, that the sky was blue. But it changed from that. And lately over there, they've been having such terrible smoke that, yes, there's lots to be grateful about being able to see blue sky. It's, it's quite beautiful. And when I look at it like that, it's not just a, a simple, I'm grateful the sky's blue. Right. There's, there's a power behind it. There's, there's a lot there. And if I can focus on the blue skies instead of the brown or smoky air, then my life's different because of the focus that I have. I write about this in the book. When I was in 1987, I was hospitalized in New York for depression and I was, I was in such a dark place. I look back on that and I feel for that version of me because I was just untouchable. Nothing could reach me, nothing. And one of the nurses on the psych unit doing her best, bless her, said to me, you know, Rachel, if you end your life, you'll never see another rose. And I looked at her right in the face and I just said, I don't care. I don't care. And I didn't. And bless her heart. (laughs) She didn't yell at me. She didn't shame me. She didn't should me. She just took my hand and sat with me and let me cry. And when I finally started learning what this word gratitude meant. I really felt for her because I know she was trying her best and I have learned how to not say that to somebody. (laughs) I needed to learn to be grateful for the smallest thing. And so when you say it changed your life, it truly saved my life to be able to say, I'm grateful for this. I mean, I'm grateful for the depression. And that's kind of an insane thing to say, except that It's shaped me and it's taught me compassion and it's taught me patience, which I'm still learning every day. It's taught me how to listen. It's taught me how to stop doing. And it's taught me how to be grateful for when it's not so loud. When the hum is not so loud, I'm very grateful. So yeah, that that moment just sits with me because I just feel like I know what she was trying to do. I really do. And I just was unreachable at that moment. However, I'm grateful to her <laughs> for trying. Maybe if she had said Daisy instead of <laughs> Rose. I love daisies. So maybe if she had said Daisy, that would have hit home. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's so wonderful that you did have someone who did try. Because I, I see so many cases that people get to be where they are because they, there's nobody talking to them. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And if they do talk to them, they don't talk to them about the truth. They don't talk to them about what's real. Well, it's, it's scary to, you know, there's a great story. <laughs> it's scary to go in the hole with somebody. There's a great story from the West Wing that Leo tells to Josh And he just basically says, you know, this guy falls in a hole and a doctor walks by and the guy says, hey, doc, can you help me? And the doctor throws a prescription down into the hole. And then a priest comes by and he's like, you know, father, can you help me? And he said, well, I'll pray for you. And he walks by and then 
his buddy Joe comes along and he goes, Joe, man, I'm in this hole. Can you help me? And Joe goes, absolutely. And he jumps down in the hole. And the guy goes, well, now we're both in the hole. And Joe goes, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Oh, wow. And that is everything to me. We're so afraid to go there with somebody. We're so afraid to really let somebody just scream and cry and grieve and just be with them, not try to fix it, not try to make it better, not try to put a Band-Aid over a gushing wound. Just say, can I bring you a glass of water? Bring them a glass of water. I'm just going to sit here. You let me know what you need and just feel with them. Because if we've been there and we know the way out, that's kind of why we're on the planet is to walk each other home. It's to, it's to jump down in that hole and say, I got this. I got this. Just you relax. And I think that that's such a key to healing is letting us be unhealed for a minute. <laughs> that's again, why I don't correct anybody when, if they say my depression, I don't immediately go, you shouldn't say that. I just sit with it. And then eventually when we're at a place where we can talk about it, I bring up the idea of what if you make it less yours and just the, how does that feel? Taking it out of you and putting it over there and then you can get there. So yeah, I love that story. It always makes me cry when I see that episode. (laughs) Yeah, It's so good. It's, it's all so much of it is perspective. Yes. You, you know, you mentioned uh, walking each other home, and Ram Das wrote a book by that title. Yes. And he lived not too far from me, actually, here on Maui. And oh. he died here when, uh, when he transitioned. And as I read that book, I thought, boy, if we could all learn this lesson, is that we're, we're all ultimately going to end up the same way might be a different process, but the, the end is the same for everybody. And we can either accept that and live our best lives while we can. Yes. Or we can deny it and miss out on a lot of the life experience that we could have. Yes. And I know with, with both uh, Jacques and, and Ron, who were the loves of my life, they, they both were. You think that's a singular thing. And I've, <laughs> I've had people say things to me that uh, are like, well, you, you can possibly love two people at the same time. And I say, how many children do you have? <laughs> That'll teach them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it stops them cold when I say that. <laughs> because it, as far as I'm concerned, there's more than enough love to go around all the time, everywhere. And when you can actually really truly focus on that love then your life's going to be different my life is certainly different i uh, learned very much about living in the moment which is another one of those things that people say well that's just trite you know it's porny no it's not it's it's uh it's the best way it truly is the best way to live and it was the best way for Ron and I to spend those years together that we did, even in spite of what was going on. We weren't worried about what was ultimately going to happen. Yeah. The only thing that we were talking about and enjoying was that very moment when we were talking about whatever we were talking about. And we were able to, to focus on, on the beauty of that. And 
it made all the difference in the world, you know, when, when he was gone. And you mentioned something earlier, and I can't remember exactly how you said it, but of, you know, the people that you were so close to that are no longer here physically. I know with Ron and Shock and my parents and my sister and all my friends that died. And you know, there's, there's been a whole lot of people in my life who've transitioned. I'm amazed at how big my heart is that it can hold all those people and all yes. that love. And when I recognize that all that love is still with me, they, they, their physical body might not be here, but their love remains. Yes. And that, uh, that changes everything. It's the big me. L love. The big, big L, L love. The yes. big L, I like that big L love. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I, I like what you were talking about living in the moment because I also talk about that a lot is it's not trite. Exactly. And when we're deep in grief or experiencing moments of really deep depression, living in the moment can suck, except it's the only moment we have. So live in it. <laughs> and just know that it's not the moment before and it's not the moment ahead. We don't know what the moment ahead is going to be. Everything could shift in the next moment. We don't know. So just be in the moment you're in. And I, I wrote down cl clenching versus releasing. And I remember when I used to, I experienced fibromyalgia. And so I deal with a lot of pain. And what I discover is when my body is experiencing pain, if I start doing this, the pain gets worse. Mm -hmm. I think I'm helping by going, well, I'll just tighten up and it'll stop. And I think oh, I'm going to, I'm helping it. And that only makes it worse. If I can breathe as much as it hurts, if I can breathe, if I can lower my shoulders and breathe and say, wow, that really hurts. At some point, it's not going to hurt. At some point, I don't know when. And it's the same with grief. It's the same with depression. If we can live with the depression instead of fight against it, resist it, clench, deny, all of that, if we could just breathe and say, wow, this moment sucks so bad. I feel so sad. I feel so in the darkness. I just want to cry. It's so hard. Breathe into that. Be in that moment because that's not, that moment is not forever. It's just that moment. It's a tough, it's a really tough lesson. And it's not easy to do without some kind of support because, I mean, that's how we lose people. You know, they get lost in that moment and they think that that moment is forever. It's never going to change and they give up. And we need to be there for people to say, it's just a moment. It's just one moment. It's going to shift. Everything always does. This is my favorite time of year because this is the time of year that all the trees teach us about change, about letting go, and about circulating death to life, death to life over and over again. The leaves are gorgeous. They're amazing. They're gone. They feed the tree. Why do we forget that, that we do the same thing? We change. We let go. We grieve, we lose, and then whatever we lose feeds us. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so beautifully said. Just absolutely beautifully said. Thank you. I'm looking at this gorgeous tree out my front window. Oh. <laughs> it's so inspiring. <laughs> I can remember when I saw trees. 
<laughs> you know, I, I lived in Alaska for, for 13 plus years and I really missed fall. It's like mm-hmm. 10 minutes. It's like, oh, it's fall. Oh, it's done. <laughs> so it's nice being back in Northeast Ohio where the trees are changing colors. <laughs> it's lovely. Oh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. I, I just, I love this wisdom that you're imparting to us. We can all get so much from it when, when we pay attention to this sort of thing. And, and being in the moment, I know Ron taught me a lot about it because he, when I met him, that was the way he lived. And so when he'd see me not doing that, he'd say, do you see what's going on right now or something like that? So I could examine it and figure it out for myself. And, and I truly did. It took a while. wasn't instant. But as I paid attention to it, I really did learn to live in the moment. And one of the things that I've taught myself to do with help along the way from things that I've been inspired by, but you were talking about it, is breathing. Because mm-hmm. we take breathing so much for granted that we don't really pay attention to what it's doing. But I realize that if, if something it, it's starting up for me and I start to tense, if I can get in a position where I really can relax my body, uh, if I can lie down, that's even better so that I can get totally relaxed. And then I let all the air out as far as mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. and just stay that way for a moment before I take another breath in. And when I do, I do, I've heard it called a belly breath, where, where you really fill up your, your belly, and eventually it works its way up to your lungs, and when you're just ultimately full, then hold that and concentrate on that for a few minutes, that this, mm. this uh, oxygen is, is circulating in your body and serving you and, and resetting you. I, I think this, this kind of breathing is a reset, and then slowly letting it back out again. And if I'm in a really comfortable place, like when I would go to get acupuncture and you, you lie there for a long time in the same position, I would practice this until it got to the point where I could I can practice it just about any place so that it, if I start to realize that tension coming up, I can go, okay, relax now. Just let it, everything be, be loose and, and gently breathe slowly so that I'm really concentrating on it. And uh, it, it makes a huge difference for me. So thank you for reminding me of that. What a wonderful conversation we've had today. I'm glad that we were able to get together. And I'm sure it's going to give the people who listen to this a lot to think about. I hope so. I hope so. I'm just grateful. I'm very, I'm very grateful for the time. <laughs> no, it's exactly what I was going to say. That, that I'm very <laughs> grateful that, that we got to do this. And I hope that people will think about these things and maybe journal about it and consider it. And life is beautiful. We just need to recognize that and live in those beautiful moments and, and make the moments beautiful. So, truly. And I and I also just want to add a quick thank you to you. Because for those of you listening and watching, uh, Emily's lovely words of encouragement are on the back of my book. And that means a lot to me. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It's, it's a wonderful book. And you, you want to hold it up and show us I your book? Sure. Let me. I think. And, and where can they get your book? Uh, at my website, www.revrachelhollander, R-E-V as in Valerie, rachelhollander.com. 
and um, the podcast is there and the book is there and Emily's words are there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And we will have uh, those locations in our show notes. So you don't have to worry about remembering them right this moment. So they'll be in the show (laughs) notes so that you can just click on them and, and get to it. I highly recommend your book. Absolutely fascinating, fascinating book. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, only the truth. (laughs) Okay, well, I will hear all of our listeners next time and grateful that you're listening to us. Thank you very much. Aloha. Aloha. (laughs) Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.